Okay, uh, I need to clear up a rumor before we get started. Um, there's a rumor going around that the city leaders of New York uh, got together and offered me a high-stakes salary <laughs> to take the place of the naked cowboy in New York City and Times Square. Uh, I am here to tell you that it's completely unsubstantiated, that it's pure political propaganda. It's not true, don't believe it. All right, here's what we are going to do this morning. Um, we're going to do something a little bit different. If it doesn't work, I'll never do it again. So you don't need to tell me, you don't need to email me, you don't need to text me. I will know it didn't work, okay? So one of, what we're going to do is we're going to do a sermon, right? But we're going to do it, we're going to read the text and study the text at the same time. So we're not going to have a standing to read the text. Got it? We're going to read the text and study the text at the same time. It's something new uh, just for this Sunday because it's a special Sunday. We are installing new leaders. So this sermon, this topic is coming from Corinthians, and it's targeting leaders of all shapes and sizes and all stripes, particularly in the church. So we're going to talk this morning. Here's how we're going to begin. We're going to talk about church, but we're going to talk about a specific church and we're going to talk about what's taking place in a specific church. What's taking place in this specific church? Substance abuse is taking place. You have alcohol, you have pain meds, you have illicit drugs. What else is taking place in this church? Sleeping around is taking place in this church, which means sex outside of marriage. And that's marriage is a permanent commitment that God has designed uh, for a man and a woman. And sex... Sexual intimacy, I need to say. My wife hates when I just say sex. I need to add that on. Sexual intimacy, tacked in there. It's between a man and a woman in the place of marriage. Sexual sin is taking place in this church. The heterosexual kind and the same-sex kind. What else is taking place in this church? An unhealthy relationship with food is taking place. In other words, food is moralized. Food Nazis, diet Nazis, like God's bread kind of Nazis, like there's a way to bake, there's a way to eat. God has food for you, so there's a moralizing of food, but there's also food is avoided. Food is avoided to punish yourself in this church. Food is avoided to, in a sense, kind of self-atone. Food also in this church is overindulged, and there's all kinds of eating disorders. What else is happening in this church? Well, marriage problems are happening in this church. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of friendship. There's a lack of working hard at the relationship. There's a lack of communication. There's a lack of sexual intimacy. Uh, there is the presence, though, where there's a lack of those things. There's an excess in anger, and there's an excess in suspicion, an excess of loneliness, and an excess of bitterness, and an excess of two people being spiritually blind to themselves. Well, what else is taking place in this church? Well, relational conflicts are taking place in this church, and that means that it's a, there's a culture in the community, and it's a, a culture in the community of control. I want to be in control, and there's a culture in this community of criticism. You're wrong, and there's a culture in this community of I'm right, and there's a culture in this community of self-importance. I'm on a mission from God. Blues Brothers. What else is taking place in this church? Well, worship wars are taking this place. People are arguing over song choice and music. 
People are dividing into liturgical camps. You have the high church camp and the low church camp. People are dividing along traditional and modern camps. There's the modern camp and the traditional camp. Cultural agendas are taking place in this camp, in this church. The ideological kind, the political kind, and the all kinds of stupid kind. What else is happening in this church? Isn't this great? Uh, doctrinal divisions are taking place in this church. Well, what does that mean? It means that people just don't see the world the same way. So they don't see God the same way. They don't see the Bible the same way. They don't see the law the same way. They don't see the gospel the same way. They don't see sin the same way. They don't see grace the same way. They don't see the church the same way. They don't see the culture the same way. They don't see church leadership the same way. They don't see the Christian life the same way. Well, what else is taking place in this church? Holy Spirit confusion is taking place in this church. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, how many gifts of the Holy Spirit are there? How long, how short is your list? And then finally, there's one more. What else is taking place in this church? Mission impotence is taking place. So what's the mission of the church? Well, just pick one. Evangelize, okay. Disciple, okay. Teach, okay. Christian education, you bet. Be holy, spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines. Do good. Social, ecological, economic, sexual, gender, and whatever's next, justice. Mental health mission of the church. Housing the homeless, mission of the church. Worship, community, ministry, mission of the church. Exercise your spiritual gifts, mission of the church. Love others, tithe, anti-racism, mission of the church. Let's talk about church. Let's talk about a specific church. Do you know this church? It's the church of Corinth, the one in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the church that the greatest man outside of Jesus who ever lived planted. It's a church plant by the apostle of apostles himself. So the question that I asked when I was reading, when I was preparing for this Sunday was like, Gosh, is today's church any better? Is First Presbyterian, First Methodist, First Lutheran, First Anglican, First Episcopalian, First Brethren, First Bible Church, First Community Church, First Baptist Church, First Brethren Church any better? Are we any better? Please hear me, this is like absolutely, it's not even the point of the sermon, but man, we could go on it. And if you get it, it actually is life-giving. And it might just change how you read the Bible. And it might just change how you look at church. And it might just change how you interact with the culture. So here's the first thing I want to say. First Corinthians, even though this is not the main point, First Corinthians is not shocked at sin. 1 Corinthians assumes sin. 
Bible is never shocked at sin. The Bible assumes sin. There it is. That's just a throwaway. But here's what 1 Corinthians does say. It does say there is something, however, getting in the way of the Corinthians' healing. There is something getting in the way of what the Bible would call their sanctification. They're being put back together again. Them becoming themselves and becoming fully human. Them being human. There is something getting in the way, and I want you to think about it right now. What do you think it is? Just think about it. Okay, what is it? What's getting in the way of them healing? What's getting in the way of their holiness, their sanctification, them being put back together again? What's blocking that? What's getting in the way? What makes it difficult for them to grow in grace or grow in the Christian life, the lingo that we would use today, to grow in life change? What's getting in the way? Do you got it? Got it in your head? You're wrong. It's not that, and it's not what you think. Paul identifies what's going on at the very beginning of the letter. In verse 10 in Corinthians, he says this. Here he goes. He's going to identify it. So we're going to identify it, then we're going to do something about it. Here it is. It's not, we're not reading it. I'm reading it. I appeal to you, brothers. In other words, Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, listen to me. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Okay, is it about divisions? but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, is that the answer? Okay, four, oh, four, here it comes. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Okay, you just said that. What I mean is this. Oh, here we go. That each of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Do you see it? What's getting in the way of their healing? Do you see it? It's all over there. Celebrity pastors. Celebrity church leadership. I told you, you didn't know what it was. So Paul is saying, listen to me. He's saying to the church, do you know what you need, Corinthians? First Corinthians Presbyterian Church. Do you know what you need? He says, do you know what you need, Redeemer? Do you know what you need, churches in Waco? Do you know what you need, anti-celebrity pastors? Anti-celebrity church leadership. Churches where no one says, I follow Paul, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollos. Churches where they only say, I follow Jesus. In other words, the church needs then and the church needs now pastors who are not into themselves. And church leaders who are not self-important. What do we need then? (laughs) What do we need? We need leaders who point. What's a leader? What's a Christian leader? Uh, I, I, I point. What's a leader in the home? I point. What's a corporate leader? I point. 
What's a coach and a teacher and a professor and a mom? Oh, I, I point. I'm a pointer to someone else. We need leaders who point. Redeemer needs leaders who point. Waco needs leaders who point. So I told you we're going to do something new, so we're going to pray first. And then we're going to read and study the text together and hope it works. And if it doesn't, again, no emails, no text. My wife will tell me, and that's all I need, okay? (laughs) And then we'll end with a surprise in the text. So we're going to pray, we're going to read and study the text, then we're going to end with a surprise in the text, and we're going to call it a sermon, and we're going to move into installing and ordaining new leaders, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we pray, we ask that you would shine on this page. So, uh, we're trusting you to do the work. We're trusting you to open eyes. We're trusting you to, as I even read this morning, the word is a lamp. So, oh, lamp, word of God, word become flesh, shine. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you're going to stay seated, but you're going to get out your Bibles, and we're going to see if we can do this, right, Tiger? We're going to I'm gonna, when I have a text up there, we're going to put like, I think, verse 1 up there, can we? And if, it's, if this matches what I'm doing, great. If it doesn't and we get distracted, we're just going to shut it off. But you want your electronic device. You want your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we are going to look at this text. You are going to like put your finger on this text. You might even like write on this text or highlight it if you have an electronic text. Okay, so we need leaders who point. We need anti-celebrity leaders. So the question is, point to what? Isn't it? It's like, okay, point. Point to someone, but point to what? Give me some specificity. Give me some practicality. Are you ready? 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, Paul's pointing of the gospel. There it is. You knew that was coming, right? You knew it was coming. So we need leaders that do this, though, Right? You know the answer, but we need leaders that do this. We need leaders who are reminding and explaining and unpacking and proclaiming and declaring and applying and theologizing and discussing and doing pastoral care and leading by pointing to the gospel. Some of us are thinking, what, that's it, Jeff? I mean, come on, that's it? Just point to the gospel? That sounds so ineffective. That sounds so powerless. That sounds so, like, not enough. It sounds so like, please, I need something more. Would you give me something more? I need to do something more. Well, Paul immediately says four things about the gospel. We're going to focus on the fourth. So up there, you see which I preach to you? That's the first thing he says about it. It's a participle. So the main verb is remind. So the gospel is the subject. So the gospel, which is very fascinating, it is the dominant thought of the whole chapter. Literarily, grammatically, lexically, it is the dominant thought of the whole book of Corinthians. 
Phenomenal. There it is. Okay, so it's the epicenter. It's the dominant thought. First thing he says about it, it was preached to you. Second thing, you're standing in it. Third thing, that was stand. Oh, second thing, you received it. Third, you stand in it. Here's what we're focusing on for our purposes, by which you are being saved. Being saved is in the present tense. This is sanctification. Do you see this? So sanctification is the healing of sin, right? And it's in the present tense that the gospel sanctifies you. So what does that Corinthian church need? What what does it need amongst all of its messes? It needs someone to go in there and point. It needs someone to go in there and tell and unpack the wonders of the gospel because the wonders of the gospel sanctify and heal you and heal your relationships and heal your homes and heal communities and heal cultures and heal all kinds of places and heal churches and heal church leadership and heals everything. Heals your worship, heals your community, heals your mission. Paul is saying the gospel is what sanctifies you, people. We need leaders who get that. We need leaders who get that. We need leaders who point. Okay, let's continue. We're going to go into verse 2. Perfect. Keep it up there. Fantastic. We need leaders who point. In other words, we need anti-celebrity leaders. So what happens if we don't point? Ah, Paul goes right into it in this text. So let's say we have leaders who don't point. Church leaders. No, I'm not a pointer. I want people to follow me. I'm on a mission from God. What happens? Now, continuing the, the being sanctified or being healed, remember that thought? This next clause follows that. The gospel sanctifies you, heals you. If you hold fast, present tense, so he's talking like right now, if you hold fast to the word of the gospel I preach to you. Oh, my word. So Paul is saying, if you don't hold fast to the word of the gospel I preach to you, then your sanctification runs out of gas. If we don't hold fast to the word of the gospel, if we're not pointing, something else takes its place. And when that does, you will run out of gas. Your worship will run out of gas. Your community will run out of gas. The culture will run out of gas. Your marriage will run out of gas. Your parenting will run out of gas. You will run out of gas. Weary and heavy laden. Now, the rules of Greek grammar, because I like to impress everybody with my Greek knowledge, the rules of Greek grammar tell us that the condition here, the condition clause is assumed to be true. So this is unbelievable. Some of you are like, oh my word, is this a if-then clause, like a conditional clause, like you got to do this or this doesn't happen? I mean, holy cow, I thought this was all by grace. Exactly. That's why grammar is so awesome. Because this first-class condition, it's assumed to be true. So what does that mean? Paul is incredibly sarcastic is what it means. Here's how it goes. It goes like this. If you hold fast to the word of the gospel I preach to you, which of course you are, right? Oh, man. Yeah. No, I'm not going to say that. Let's move on. Then Paul continues by saying the same thing with even more sarcasm. Are you ready? The gospel sanctifies you, heals you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. Is there such a thing? 
Can you believe in vain? Is there faith without effect? That's what this text is literally saying. Unless you believed without effect, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed without power, unless you believed without effect, and Paul's saying, is there such a thing that exists? No. No, there's not, he's saying. Incredibly sarcastically. Leaders, if you don't hold to the gospel, if you're not a pointer, you cause everyone around you to run out of gas. You act like faith has no power, which of course, it doesn't. It's always with effect. Okay, let's continue. So Paul is saying to the church, then and now, don't be stupid. Stop treating the gospel like it's ineffective. Stop treating the gospel like it's without power. Paul is basically saying, listen, when you hold to the gospel, hold fast, you are holding, touching Jesus. And that is with effect. That is powerful. And that puts gas in your tank. And that sanctifies you, heals you, puts you back together. I mean, just ask the woman that did touch Jesus. Do you remember her? I relate to her a lot. I never thought I would, but I do. Do you know what it said about her? She went to everyone to try to figure out what was wrong with her. And for 12 years, it's only two with my neck, 12 years, her problem was never healed. But when she saw Jesus, all she knew, this is what she says, you ready? If I only touch him, I'll be made well. And do you remember what happens? She said, this is so great. The crowd's pressing her on. She's on a mission. She doesn't see the crowd. She doesn't see anybody. This is the kind of leader we need. The crowd's moving. Everyone's going. And she's on a mission. And she's going to touch him. And she does. And the text says this, remember? Power went out from him. And he goes, who touched me? Of course he knows. Who touched me? She needs to know that he knows. When you hold to the gospel, you are touching Jesus. We need leaders who do that and point others to do that. I don't want to hold your 10 steps. I don't want to hold your spiritual techniques. I don't want to hold your discipleship manuals. I want to hold Jesus. And people need to hold Jesus. Touch him. And the only way they're going to touch him is if you point to him church leaders. Shall we continue? Oh, yeah. You are ahead of me, dude. That's so awesome. Here we go. We need leaders who point, anti-celebrity leaders. So now we're getting to verse 3. What is this gospel, though? What is this, this good news? We, 
We hear it. What specifically is it? First thing he wants you to know, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, it's really, really important that we see what first importance means. First importance does not mean first in chronological order. It means first in preeminence. So if it was first in chronological order, which is how we mostly treat the gospel, oh, yeah, this is the ABCs of Christianity. So let me give you the first of importance in order. You need to know the gospel, unbelieving person. Here's the ABCs, how you become into the church. Now we move on the D through Z of the Christian life. But that's not what's said here. Of first importance means of first preeminence. Which means it is the preeminent power. The preeminent original power. The preeminent original source authority. It's the original It's the power that every knee bows to. So there are powers that some knee bow to. You know, children, you bow to your parents. Coach, pretty much every kid bows to the coach. But there's only one power that every knee bows. What is the gospel? Preeminent power. The kind of power you're looking for. The kind of power your unchurched friends and churched friends are looking for. The kind of power that churched people are starving for. The kind of power that Uvalde needs. So why is this gospel, though, preeminent power? You see how it's happening? Following the God. I mean, I told you, we're doing Bible study. This is what I do, and I love it. See that? That, I put loops over that. That's going to tell you what specifically the preeminent power is. Here it comes. It's giving you the content of the preeminent power. So it's a preeminent power. Every knee bounds to it. There is no other power on the battlefield. It has won. So what has won? Here we go. You ready? We're going to continue. Here we go. Uh, For I delivered to you which of first importance what I also received. Let's focus on that received real quick. First thing we need to know about this received, this gospel, what is it? Received means the gospel is not from Paul. So this is not Paul's teaching. This is not Paul's advice. This is not Paul's counsel. That means it's also not Abraham's, and it's also not Moses's, and it's also not David's. So if you read the Bible as if it's their advice, as if it's their counsel, as if it's their instructions... You're not getting the gospel. This also means it's not from Arminianism or Calvinism or Protestantism or Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxism or Western Orthodoxism and whatever other Orthodoxisms are out there. What this means is that the gospel is completely different from human teaching, human counsel, human advice. Human instruction. It means the gospel is not something we do to make something happen. It means the gospel is not up to us to do it. So what is this gospel? Let's go. For I delivered to you, which is of first importance, what I received. Here's what I received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? Old Testament. Now that's shocking. 
Because we always say, you know, I get that you're a Christ-centered preacher, Jeff. Yeah, I get it, I get it. But, you know, that's the New Testament. Where do you get Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, I don't know. Paul did. Paul is saying that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Old Testament. Okay. So this means, too, when Christ died for our sins, do you see this? This is a certain kind of death. So this is not a COVID death. This is not a, uh, an accidental car death. This is not an, an over-substance abuse death. Uh, this is a certain kind of death. It's a, what kind of death is it? Christ's death is a certain kind of death according to this text. Do you see it? It's a sin-killing death. It's a sin-eating death. It's a sin-healing death. Christ died not any kind of death. He died a sin death, a sin-killing death. It's not up to you to act, the gospel says, because someone else has acted. Well, let's continue. Why is the gospel preeminent power? Because it's a certain kind of death. Now, let's continue. That he was buried. Well, this is really cool. I mean, I just want to put this in because I think it's... Why did, why did he say that? <coughs> why did he say buried? I mean, you get it. He died, right? Well, I think this is the reason because it was a real death. There was a real body. In other words, Jesus was not a vision a phantasm, a ghost, the figment of someone's imagination or someone who's on a bad drug trip. It's not a mystical encounter. Jesus was a real person with a real body who was buried. Which is interesting because most other founders of major religions that claim to have had a revelation from God were on a bad drug trip, did have a vision did have some angel appear to him. Fascinating. It's not up to you to act. Someone else acted. He was buried. All right, let's continue. Why is the gospel preeminent power? Another that. Yep. Verse 4, that he was raised on the third day. So Jesus was not raised in your imagination. Jesus was not raised in the heart, in your spiritual experience. Jesus was raised on the third day. Jesus was not raised according to someone's counsel, but on the third day. Jesus was not raised according to someone's enlightened vision, but on the third day. Jesus was not raised because everyone had a mass hallucination because they were overcome with emotion and spiritual height, but on the third day. This is amazing. It's not up to you to act. Someone else acted on the third day. And again, do you see that little line, according to the scriptures? I mean, that's incredible. So evidently, according to Paul, the Old Testament tells you this. The Old Testament tells you about a resurrection. All right, why is the gospel preeminent? Just in case we missed it, we're just going to wrap this one up here. There's, he appears to all these people. So in case we missed that he rose from the dead, there's a lot of appearances a lot of them. So we have, uh, he was raised on the third day according to, he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12. Let's keep going. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. This is so, so important because he's basically saying, listen, you can go ask these people. 
In other words, how convenient would it be to come up with a religion or a myth that you draw up in an area, from an area, when everyone's dead there? But what if they're all still living and you have over 500 witnesses that could say, yeah, I saw him, man, it's unbelievable. And you're just like, oh, my word. Who else? Go see Bob. Okay, Bob, what did you see? Man, he was alive. Over 500 people he appeared to. Go ask him. So he appeared, he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. It's not up to you to act, the gospel says. Someone else already acted. We need leaders who point to someone else who already acted. All right, let's end this way. Yes, we do. There's a surprise here for leaders. Did you catch it? I mean, we're going to catch it. Let's go down to, can we go down to verse 10? Because he appears, Paul ends up saying, and lastly appears to me. Interesting, he described himself as one who was born dead. Those of you that have been here a while, we talk about being a zombie. That's what he's saying. I was born dead. And he appeared to one born dead. And then, I mean, this is incredible in verse 10, but by the grace of God, this is, this is an incredible surprise. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, we already seen this word, vain, 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 over and over again, haven't we? So we could say it this way, literally. His grace toward me was not without effect. His grace towards me was not without power. On the contrary, now this is awesome. I worked harder than any of them. Can you imagine what kind of person can say such a thing? What kind of person, while they're still alive, all his little team of leaders and buddies are still alive called the apostles, and he says, and they know, I outworked all of y'all. I've worked out everyone. That's incredible. Confidence, right? But there's no pride here. Let's keep reading. But don't miss this. Though it was not I, here it is. Here's the surprise. But the grace of God that is with me. Grace is mentioned three times in verse 10. Notice it's not the grace of God in me. It's not the grace of God for me. It's the grace of God with me. Grace is personified. Grace is a person. In other words, leaders, Christians, anyone who takes up the call and the invitation to be a pointer, listen to this news for you. The resurrection is not just a demonstration of preeminent power, which it is. He's alive. The resurrection for Paul and for you, leader who points, is evidence and a demonstration of his preeminent presence with you. In other words, he didn't just rise to be preeminent in power. He rose with a specific goal to be with you. So when you point, he's with you. When you point, he goes where you go and he does things. And he outworks everyone.
We need leaders who get this. We need leaders that say, that's all I want to be about. We don't need celebrity leaders, celebrity pastors, celebrity church attenders. We need pointers. Let me pray for us.